I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. And the Long Now is usually described as last 10,000 years and the next 10,000 years. Um, civilization story is how we refer to it. But it's not the only long now around. It's not the longest now around. Um, the woolly mammoth separated off from Asian elephant, other mammoth-type creatures about six million years ago. The passenger pigeon separated off from our local bird, the band-tailed pigeon, about Still figuring it out exactly, maybe 18 million years ago. The passenger pigeons were done in by civilization about 100 years ago. Uh, the woolly mammoths were done in partly by pre-civilization about 10 to 12,000 years ago. And if civilization rises to the occasion and uses the amazing tools it's developing, we might get these animals back into the long now they're accustomed to and be around for another 6 million years or 18 million years. A person who's been in the thick of that is one of those rare biologists who is a surpassingly good bench biologist and a, one of those field biologists who has way more fun than anybody deserves to have, Beth Shapiro. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Never know what to say when Stuart stands up and says humiliating things like that. Um, so uh, I'd like to start off by thanking Stuart and, uh, and Ryan Phelan and Revive and Restore and, of course, the Long Now Foundation. Ryan and Stuart have been friends and mentors of mine for some time now, and I'm really grateful for all the help and encouragement that they've given, and I just wanted to start off by thanking them. I'd just like to thank you guys for taking the time to come and listen to me this evening. Hopefully I will at least entertain you, if not to uh, surprise you. Um, if you get really bored or mad, just walk out. That's fine. I don't mind. <laughs> Perfectly custom to that kind of thing. Just kidding. All right. So today <laughs> I'm going to talk about uh, how to clone a mammoth. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about how I got into it. But I thought I would, I would start off by introducing you to the kind of science that we do. And what better way than, as Stuart so kindly points out, but to, to show you what we do when we're in the field. So um, one of the many hats I wear is as a uh, it's called an emerging explorer with National Geographic. I'm not really sure what I'm emerging from, but uh, that's the title. And this is a little bit of, uh, of stuff that we shot in the field a few years ago that we put together for the World Science Festival, uh, which is in, was in New York City a few years ago. So just to start off, a little short video clip. So this is really cool, what we've just found you can see is one, two, three, four pieces of mammoth bone here. This is part of a vertebra, so you can see how big this is. And the neat thing about this is that these are the small pieces, which means that the stuff is washed downstream. See, these pieces are actually still frozen in the permafrost. We can't get them out at all, which means they're going to be really well preserved. 
just heard that big splash of water back there. That means another hole's broken through. Here comes the water. We better get out of here. <laughs> okay. That's a little bit silly, and, but uh, in my own defense, that water is really gross, okay? So that was up uh, near Dawson City in Canada's Yukon Territory, where there's a lot of active gold mining going on. And what that, what that is right there is during the spring snowmelt, they collect the melting water in these big holding ponds, and then they pump it up using these high-pressure water hoses and wash down the permafrost, the frozen dirt. And they wash it down for a little bit, and then they wait, and the frozen bits thaw for the next couple of inches, and they wash it down a little bit more. And all this time, they're getting rid of these you know, hundreds of thousands of years of decaying plant and animal matter. It's disgusting. You don't want that on top of yourself, right? Gross. So the miners are actually trying to get rid of all the permafrost because the gold is actually in the gravels beneath. But as they're doing that, tons and tons of bones come out, bones from Ice Age animals that we can collect and take back to the lab. So I'm a biologist, a molecular biologist or evolutionary biologist or molecular paleontologist, whatever you want to call it. I make up something new pretty much every time I say it. Um, I'm actually interested in climate change and how species and communities are affected by climate change. So when we see things or hear stories about climate change, often what we actually see are pictures like this one, where we hear about changes in weather patterns that are causing um, you know, lakes to disappear, rivers to dry up, California, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> Increases and changes in storm patterns and, of course, species that are pushed to the brink of extinction. And if we read about this in the popular press, often what we're told is that everything is going terribly, horribly wrong, right? You know, and what are we going to do about it? Well, that's exactly what we try to do as biologists. What we want to know is how are species and communities and ecosystems going to respond to the climate change that's happening now and that's predicted for the next several decades or centuries. So if you follow, follow the climate change literature at all, you've probably seen a plot that looks like this. This is very famously called a hockey stick plot. You see right here, this looks a little bit like a hockey stick, where we have the tall end of the stick and then curving up here. What this plot actually is, is the line that goes across is the average global temperature around 1960. And then what we see are changes in global temperature around the last thousand years. And within the last couple hundred years, global temperatures have increased quite considerably, about a degree and a half. Celsius over just a couple hundred years. And of course, this plot can be extended into the future where we can see kind of crazy estimates of how quickly the temperature is going to rise. This, however, is not the first time in recent history where the world has warmed up pretty quickly. If we extend this plot backward in time, now to 50,000 years ago, and it ends just where this plot begins, around 1,000 years, we see that around 20,000 years ago, right here, there was a very rapid increase in global temperatures. In fact, this increase is eight degrees, not a degree and a half. And this second half of the increase, this, by the way, is the peak of the last ice age, and this right here is the transition into the warm Holocene interval that we have right now. But we've collected data from the Arctic where we work that suggests that this last increase might have happened over as few years as a couple of decades or about a century. 
So this is a past period of incredibly rapid climate change that is as destructive and as consequential for things that are alive as whatever is predicted for the future. So what we do is we go back in time and study communities over this time interval and ask how did species and communities and ecosystems respond to this past period of very rapid climate change. The goal then would be to try to make better decisions about what to do with the limited resources and energy that we have to deal with climate change that's projected for the future. So the field I work in is called ancient DNA, pretty self-explanatory. It means very old DNA, not grandma's DNA, but you know, pretty old DNA. We can go back a lot further than a couple hundred years. The oldest DNA we've been able to extract from something is from a horse bone that we know is around 700,000 years old. That's pretty old, right? We work mostly in a place called Beringia. Beringia spans from kind of the western part of Canada here all the way across, this is the Bering Strait, into this, the part of the world that Sarah Palin can see from her backyard. <laughs> right? So you see that there's this kind of light color here. That's because the sea isn't as deep there. And during ice ages, when a lot of the Earth's water was taken up into making big glaciers that sat on top of the continents, this was actually exposed. It wasn't underwater. It was a very rich grassland. And this area right here was a land bridge that connected North America and Asia and allowed lots of species to go back and forth. Horses and camels went in this direction. Bison, other species, including our own, went in this direction, and there was exchange between these two continents. Today, Beringia looks a lot like this. I'm actually in this helicopter, looking down, taking the picture here. This is in the Timur Peninsula in north-central Siberia. I'll show you a picture of that fantastic flying machine in just a moment. But during the last ice age, it looked more like this, where you had lots of different species of herbivores that were grazing on a very rich grassland and preyed upon by many different species of carnivores. So we fly out into this fantastic area. Here's this lovely machine. You see that it's actually missing some helicopter from windows here in the helicopter. <laughs> That's actually good, just in case you want to smoke in celebration of taking off. I'm not saying that happened. I'm also not saying it didn't happen. It wasn't me. We stay in five-star accommodation. This is, um, this is a picture of my tent that I took by backing up and unfocusing my camera lens. Just you could see the, the depth of mosquitoes that we deal with when we're up there. Yep, those are all mosquitoes. And we walk along areas where the permafrost is thawing. So this is back in Dawson City in the Yukon Territory. And you see that uh, this is them washing down the permafrost with this high-pressure water hose. And there are some people from our group kind of wandering around, picking up the bones that wash out. So in one day of collecting around Dawson City, we'll often collect somewhere between five and 20 bags that look, whoops, bags that look like this. Um, this is mostly bison bones and horse bones. There's also mammoth and caribou. Every now and then we get really lucky and we get a lion or a wolf or a big bear, some sort of carnivore that was there. Pretty exciting. We take a little chunk out of each of the bones and take it back to the lab and extract DNA. And what we do is we then correlate the amount of genetic diversity we see in these populations at any one time point with how big the population was. Lots of diversity or increasing diversity means the population is growing. Very little diversity means the population is shrinking. And we've learned quite a lot in the last couple of decades doing this kind of work. We've learned, for example, that 
bison and horses and mammoths peaked in population size somewhere around 40 to 35,000 years ago. And this is really interesting because two of the, main, the two main hypotheses about what killed off things like mammoths and mastodons around 8 to 10,000 years ago are they didn't really like the ice age, the peak of the last ice age. That was about 20 to 25,000 years ago. Or that humans killed them. And in North America, there aren't large numbers of humans until after about 14,000 years ago. So that these species started to decline toward extinction well before, more than 20,000 years before humans arrived, for example, kind of puts us off the hook for the initial part of that decline. Not quite willing to let us off the hook for the ultimate extinction, but, you know, we'll get there eventually. We've also seen a carnivore population like bears expand in response to growing populations of herbivores and move across space really rapidly, establishing lots of new populations. And we've started to figure out why some species, like caribou, do so well. They don't like to live near humans, that's a hint. And other species, like cave lions, have done particularly poorly. And we often publish this work in pretty high-profile journals. We get a lot of interest from the popular press and the scientific press and, you know, my mom and stuff like that. And I'm always really excited to talk about our work and to, to, you know, to spread some of the knowledge that we've learned about what we can do now to try to protect species in the present day from potentially going extinct. And yet, they only ever really ask me one question. So the field, the field that this has become um, is called de-extinction. I'm not sure where that name came from, and I don't really like it, <laughs> but we're kind of stuck with it. I don't like it because it's really hard to conjugate, you know? What do you say? You're de-extincting something? That's just terrible, right? Of course, we're all familiar with de-extinction because we were there when we did it last time, right? And we know <laughs> that it went exceedingly well, you know? <laughs> Nothing went wrong at all. Life didn't find a way. So the way this worked, of course, was that uh, the scientists at Jurassic Park were able to recover dinosaur DNA from mosquitoes entombed in amber. Well, bad news. There is no DNA, mosquito or dinosaur or otherwise, in amber. In fact, um, scientists at uh, University College London and the Natural History Museum in London were able to show that even in copal, which is a precursor to amber that's only a couple of decades old, there is no DNA. It's too hot an environment and too porous an environment, and DNA doesn't survive. Of course, there are lots of dinosaur bones out there. Surely we could look in those. Well, dinosaur bones are actually rocks. Right? That's what it means to be fossilized. Everything that's in there that was biological is now a rock. And we can't get DNAs from, from rocks, which means we, we can't clone dinosaurs. Sorry. <laughs> of course, Mammoth bones are not rocks, and we know that there are very many incredibly well-preserved mammoth, mammoth remains, including some fantastic mummies that have been found, especially recently, melting out of the Siberian permafrost. So, can we bring back a mammoth? And that's what I'm going to tell you about in the next 30 minutes or so, how to clone a mammoth. So, the first plan that people generally think of when we're going to think about bringing back a mammoth is cloning. So, plan A, let's clone a mammoth. 
Cloning, in fact, is a very specific scientific process, and the, the science words for it are somatic cell nuclear transfer. Somatic cell nuclear transfer. So in our bodies, we basically have two types of cells, sperm and eggs, and those are germline cells or germ cells, and everything else. Those are somatic cells, hair cells, cheek cells, heart cells, skin cells, whatever. Those are all somatic cells. So the key to somatic cell nuclear transfer is to convince a cell that isn't a germline cell. So normally what would happen is a sperm and an egg meet, create a zygote. That thing can then divide and become every part of an animal, every single part. Somatic cells are pretty stuck in what they are. A skin cell can't suddenly decide to be a heart cell or a liver cell, and a liver cell can't suddenly decide to be a skin cell. So the trick here is to take one of those cells that already knows what it's supposed to be, has all the instructions for being a specific type of cell, and trick it into reverting into a cell that can then become every other type of cell in an organism. So the most famous example of somatic cell nuclear transfer was the experiment done by the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh in the mid-1990s that brought us Dolly the sheep. Remember Dolly the sheep? So what happened here was Dolly, oh, sorry, Dolly is the offspring, some sheep, they took a, uh, <laughs> who knows what Dolly's clone was actually called? I have no idea, right? There's something, it seems like something we should know. I'm sure somebody knows, just not me. Anyway, they took a mammary cell, so a cell that was pretty, pretty sure, knew what it was going to be. It was going to be a mammary cell. And they took a couple of cells and, and starved them of nutrients, pretty much just stressed them out, put them in a dish in a lab, stressed them out. At the same time, they harvested some egg cells from a different breed of you, and they sucked the nucleus, the genetic material, out of that cell. So now they had an empty egg cell and this starved cell over here. And they put them next to each other and zap them with a bit of electricity, and the membrane bursts, and the nuclear material from that starved somatic cell dumps into the egg cell, right? And then you zap them again, and the proteins in that egg cell actually cause that mammary cell to forget all of the instructions for being a mammary cell and reset into one of those early forms of cells that could then go on to become every type of cell in an organism. And then that egg cell develops into a embryo, which is implanted in a surrogate, which is yet another breed of sheep, and eventually Dolly is born. And Dolly is a genetic clone of the donor you and not of the donor of the egg cell or of the surrogate mother. So how would this work with a mammoth? Well, we go out into the field and we find an incredibly well-preserved mammoth and then we take out some of the cells and we stress them out in a dish in a lab and then we insert them into an egg cell. Some magical thing happens, right? It resets that cell and then we stick it inside a mom elephant and it grows up to be a baby elephant and we release it into the environment. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Well, we do find a lot of incredibly well-preserved remains in the Arctic. Uh, we find, this is a, whoops, ah, go back. 
This is a horse jaw here that is from the Klondike near Dawson City, and that horse jaw is probably somewhere around uh, 40 to 50,000 years old, but it looks like it just could have been deposited a little while ago. We find, again, these incredibly well-preserved bones. There are lots of mummies that we find all the time. And a few summers ago, you might have seen on the news this team that found this really well-preserved frozen mammoth mummy melting out of the permafrost in the new Siberian islands. This is the one that was supposedly associated with liquid substance, liquid red substance that looked like blood. I don't think it's been proven that it was blood, and I have my doubts, but, you know, these are incredibly well-preserved. And yet, in all of these remains, there will never be an intact cell. And that's because as soon as an organism dies, the DNA begins to decay. The sun is a terrible source of UV radiation. We know that we walk outside, we want to cover in sunscreens, so that it doesn't actually destroy, make nicks, and break our DNA. Well, we have enzymes in our bodies that can go along and fix those things, but those all require energy. And once we're dead, we have no more energy. There are also enzymes from the bacteria that are in our own guts. If you're a mummy and you start to decay, that gut bursts, and, the, and those bacteria go everywhere and start chewing up the DNA sequences in the cell. A bone that gets buried in the ground is going to be attacked by soil microbes and fungi and all sorts of things that will chew up the DNA in the cells. Freezing and thawing is terrible. Oxygen, water, all of these things are terrible for DNA survival. And as soon as an organism dies, the DNA begins to decay. There are no living cells, which means we cannot clone a mammoth. Thank you for coming. <laughs> of course, there is another way, right? So a few weeks ago, a team of scientists, an international team led by a group out of the Natural History Museum in Sweden, Stockholm, published a paper in which they reported that they had sequenced the complete genomes of two mammoths, one from Wrangell Island that was around 3,500 years old and another from Siberia that was about 40,000 years old. So now we have these sequences of A's, C's, G's, and T's, the letter that makes up our DNA, that make for the code for the genes that make the proteins that make us look and act the way we do. We have all of this, all four billion of them for a mammoth. So surely we could just go into the lab and synthesize long strands of ACs, Gs, and Ts, get them into a chromosome, and then put those chromosomes into the cell, right? And then put that cell into the other cell, and then the whole thing with the, yeah. So first, let's talk about the word complete when we use that to describe a genome sequence, right? So there aren't really any complete genome sequences for, for vertebrate species out there, including humans, right? Now, to be fair, we do know most of the sequence of the human genome, and we definitely know all the parts, or most of the parts, that have genes in them, the part that make proteins that make us look and act the way we do. But there are parts of the human genome, especially those that are close to the center and of chromosomes and near the ends of the chromosomes, that are actually made up of really tightly condensed repeat regions, that there's no existing sequencing technology that we can read through, which means that we can't actually start from one end of the chromosome and build a long sequence of A, C's, G's, and T's that's exactly the right sequence for even a human chromosome. 
And it's a lot harder for something that's been extinct for a long time. And there are two main reasons that why building or understanding the complete genome sequence of something that's no longer alive is very hard. First, just goes back to kind of what I was saying earlier about the DNA being degraded. The sequences that we recover from a mammoth bone are actually very short, and they have lots of chemical damage that's really characteristic of ancient DNA. So if you imagine that a, long, a, a, a modern sequence, if you were to get it out of a living animal, was like a big, long party streamer, ancient DNA, when we get it out of a mammoth bone, is more like confetti. <laughs> But I couldn't actually find a picture of confetti the day after the parade in the gutter where it was raining, <laughs> and there were like elephants in the parade and passenger pigeons flying overhead. So this is the closest enough, close enough to, to what it really looks like, but it's actually not that good, okay? The second reason is that the samples themselves, if we extract DNA from a mammoth bone, it's not just mammoth DNA that we can get out of them. So if I were to extract DNA from a piece of my own hair or from a swab from the inside of my cheek, what I would get would be something like this. So I extract DNA and then sequence everything I get in that extract. Pretty much all of what I would get out of there would be my own DNA. That's because I'm alive, I'm in pretty good shape, not contaminated as far as I know. If I were to extract DNA from a, a mammoth bone, and we have done this experiment, and then sequence everything I get out of that extract, so this is the, a, plot, a similar plot to this from the, the first time that we, we did this, which was about a decade ago now, we got um, a sample where about half, about half of the DNA that we recovered from that DNA extracted from a mammoth bone was actually mammoth DNA. The rest of it was environmental DNA, microbial DNA from the soil. There was a lot that we didn't know what it was. It was probably also soil microbial DNA, but because there's so much diversity of DNA in the soil, there's just not a lot that we could compare it to. So we get a bit confused along the way. So about, about half. And we were, we were pretty bummed, you know? We thought this was, this was a bad sign. This meant we were never really going to be able to sequence a complete mammoth genome. But a decade later, we actually now know that this was an incredibly well-preserved specimen. And in fact, most of the bones that we extract DNA from contain much less endogenous or host DNA than that. Many of you might be familiar with the Neanderthal Genome Sequencing Project. The first bones that uh, that team used to extract Neanderthal DNA, there were several bones, and those bones all had less than 1% Neanderthal DNA in it. 99% of that stuff was just thrown away because it was just other stuff, mostly soil bacteria, that had gotten into those bones after they were buried. So instead of just having this, imagine we just get all of our dirty, gross confetti, and what we really want are just the purple pieces, right? So it's actually quite hard. It's actually not a really straightforward thing to do. So how do we know? How can we even tell which pieces are purple and which pieces are not purple? How do we know how to come up with the mammoth genome that we have? Well, fortunately, we live in a time where we do have lots of good sequences. And if we're interested in sequencing the mammoth genome, we have an elephant genome that we can use as a scaffold, as a map um, to use to figure out where those tiny little broken fragments do. And if we're assembling the Neanderthal genome, we have a human genome that we can use. And so we take these 
short little broken fragments that we have, and then we map them to the existing genome from closely related living species. And what we end up with is a good idea, a pretty good approximation of what these different sequences would have looked like, these genome sequences. Of course, if there are parts of the genome where the thing that we're trying to assemble, the extinct species, is very different from the thing that we've already assembled, the living species, we're probably going to miss that. We're probably going to think that it's just another bit of soil microbial DNA and throw it out. And if we're really interested in finding those bits of the genome where the mammoth is most different from an elephant, one might think that these places that we can't map because we don't have the mammoth genome are probably kind of important. Another problem is that having a sequence, even if we could string together long strands of ACs, Gs, and Ts, is not the same thing as having a living cell. So we are getting better at stringing together these things, but we don't know how to wrap them up in the correct way to make them turn into chromosomes. And we don't know how to get those chromosomes into cells. So if it's plan B, sequencing and assembling our own mammoth that we're really going to use to bring back the mammoth, we're kind of stuck on step one. So guess what? <laughs> but there is another way, or we wouldn't be here, right? So the third way, and this is the way that probably is going to be used if we are going to proceed with this particular stuff at all, would be to engineer ourselves a mammoth. And it's really a simple process overall, kind of conceptually. We think about engineering a mammoth as a, a giant cut-and-paste job, where really what we're trying to do is find bits of the genome that are too elephant-like to be a mammoth and chop those out, and then replace them with parts of the genome that are mammoth-like. So we start with this sequence that we have, and we can compare the sequences of a mammoth and an elephant, and we can identify regions of the genome where Asian elephants all look one way and mammoths all look another way, and these two things are different from each other. And then we can take an Asian elephant cell and and we can just cut out those bits that are Asian elephant specific and replace them with the bits, the same bits, but the mammoth version of those genes. So imagine you had a little machine that you could program to go into the genome inside the nucleus of a cell and find exactly a specific place in the genome. And imagine that you could arm that little machine with a sequence of DNA that it would take with it. And that DNA could be the mammoth version of a gene that it could kind of chop out and replace in. Turns out, we have that machine. And it's not actually a synthetic thing. It's not something that's been created by people. In fact, it's an enzyme protein complex that we've stolen, hijacked a bit, from bacteria and archaea that those organisms use to protect themselves from invading pathogens. And that machine is called CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas9. It's been in the news a lot recently because it's incredibly powerful and therefore a little bit controversial about what it can potentially do. So here's our little machine. This is the CRISPR. Here's our elephant DNA. And here's the bit that we want to change. This little piece right here is the part of that machine that can go in and recognize and grab a hold of a specific part of that elephant genome. And then we send in with that machine a little package that is the elephant version of a particular gene that we want to replace. Our little machine, the CRISPR molecule, finds that part of the genome and it cuts the DNA strand in half. Now, cells don't like to be cut in half. Genomes don't like to be cut in half. You wouldn't do to a cell. And so they have a couple of different mechanisms that have evolved over time to fix when you get damage inside a cell like this. 
The idea then would be to harness the cell's own repair machinery to fix this double-strand break, but at the same time stick in that mammoth version of, the, of whatever it was that's been cut out, right? And then you end up with an elephant that is just a little bit mammoth-like. <laughs> so what do we change? if we want to go in there. Well, we know that mammoths and Asian elephants diverged somewhere around six million years ago, and that means that they're going to have around 99% similar genomes to start off with. So there's only going to be somewhere between a million and a million and a half places where Asian elephants and mammoths are actually different from each other. Now, I'm not saying we would have to make all of these changes, but the first thing we might want to do is figure out which genes, which things that code for proteins that actually change the way an organism looks or acts we might want to change between a mammoth and an elephant. Well, about five years ago, um, a group in Manitoba, Kevin Campbell's lab, figured out that there is a, a gene, hemoglobin gene, it's a protein in red blood cells, which is responsible for carrying oxygen around the body, that the hemoglobin of woolly mammoths was different from that of Asian elephants by only three changes. Three changes. That's pretty easy to make, right? And then, to, see, to figure out what these three changes actually did, they made these cells, these hemoglobin cells, in a dish, and they measured what the difference was between the mammoth version of hemoglobin and the elephant version of hemoglobin. And it turns out that the mammoth version of hemoglobin is much better at carrying oxygen around the body at low temperatures. So this is pretty clearly something that we might want to change if what we're interested in doing is baking an elephant that's able to live like a mammoth. So what else? Well, there's lots of possibilities and big long list. And there's actually a team at Harvard at the Wyss Institute that's being led by George Church and his other crew here who fondly call themselves the mammoth revivalists. I like that term. That's yeah, pretty cool. And they have so far changed 14 genes, mostly thinking about genes that are involved in thermoregulation and being able to create a, a, a warm-blooded animal, tropically adapted elephant, that can live in cooler places like a mammoth could. And they have attempted 14 changes and successfully made 14 changes and have created something that is approximately <laughs> a tiny amount mammoth in a dish, in a lab, right? This is cells growing in a lab, which is a big difference from having an actual living, breathing mammoth, but it's a really fantastic and exciting start. So it turns out that here we do have the genome sequence of a mammoth, so we can check that one off the list. And we also have this kind of technology that we can use to take an elephant genome sequence and turn it into a mammoth genome sequence, and that's that CRISPR technology. And then what we have is an elephant cell, a living elephant cell growing in a dish in the lab, which means we can use somatic cell nuclear transfer and clone an elephant. And then we have to put it in a female and grow it up to being a little baby and release it into the woods. Well, we call this part of de-extinction, which I'm just now getting to, phase two. So when we hear about de-extinction or cloning mammoths or whatever in the popular press, 
often this part, this phase two, is kind of glossed over. The idea being that since we can sequence these things and we can change and edit genomes in a cell, that means that we're next to, just really close to having a, a mammoth born tomorrow, right? Well, it turns out we're really far from this because this is something that we can't do for elephants. We don't know how to do this for elephants and we really haven't thought about what we're gonna do with them, right? So this is phase two is potentially even more difficult than phase one has been. And it's gonna vary depending on what species we're talking about, but there are considerable challenges. The first step, of course, would be to find an appropriate surrogate mom. <laughs> so for species that are recently extinct or have very closely related living relatives, this step might be doable, right? Maybe Asian elephants would be a good surrogate host for a mammoth. And the Bucardo project, this ibex that used to live in the Pyrenees, there are very closely relating other ibexes that might be useful surrogate hosts. But as the evolutionary distance between the thing that you're trying to bring back and the closest living species increases, how feasible will it be to find an appropriate surrogate hosts? In many cases, there might actually be physical challenges associated with this. Think about size differences between extinct species and living species. This is probably not a problem for mammoths. We know that the, 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 the woolly mammoth that lived in the late Pleistocene was approximately the same size as Asian elephants, so a size difference might not be a huge problem here. However, there are other species that have been suggested as candidate species for de-extinction where size differences are probably a pretty big problem. This guy right here is a stellar sea cow and that's a foot for scale. This is a big, big animal. Used to live along the coast of California up across the Aleutian Islands to the commanders and went extinct a couple hundred years ago because one of them could feed a crew of 30 men for a couple of weeks. These were big, big animals. <clears throat> the closest living relative of stellar sea cow is a dugong, right? You guys know what a dugong is, pretty normal. Well, it's still a big animal, but nothing like this crazy thing right here. If you think about, uh, if, if we were to assume that the size ratio between a newborn calf and the mom is pretty similar in the stellar sea cow and its closely related dugongs and manatees, then a newborn stellar sea cow would be bigger than its mom. <laughs> Probably not a good idea. Really gross, actually. <laughs> We're also increasingly learning about how, how the environments in which we live and to which we are exposed affect the way we end up looking and acting. We are much more than the sum of the A, C's, G's, and T's that make up our genome sequences, and in fact, are a product of our gene and our environment. If we were only a product of our DNA sequences, then identical twins would be identical and they would remain identical throughout their lives. And yet many of us know identical twins who are in their old age, by the time they're in their 70s and 80s, they often don't even look like they're related anymore. And that's because of all the different environments and diets and stresses that they've experienced in their lives. And these environmental conditions begin in development. So you're talking about an animal that's already 99% identical genetically to the surrogate mom, who's going to be exposed to that surrogate mom's diet and hormones, to the stresses of that surrogate mom during pregnancy. It's gonna be born to a different species. Elephants, we know, eat the dung of their moms in order to establish the community of microbes that live in their gut. So, 
an, this particular newborn, nearly identical genetic elephant would be exposed to this surrogate host's mom's gut community as well. And we're starting to understand how important microbial communities are in our own behavior and appearance. There's no reason to suspect it wouldn't be the same for something like an elephant or a mammoth. They'll be raised with, with elephant societies and consume whatever diet elephants consume in captivity. Who knows what they're fed in captivity in different places. And all of these things are going to affect the way these animals look and act. And speaking of captivity, there are, with every species that's a candidate for de-extinction, ethical considerations at every step along the way, not just technical challenges that we'll address, but also ethical challenges. And with elephants in particular, we do not know right now how to meet the psychological and physical needs of elephants in captivity. Elephants often fail to breed in captive environments. If they do, they sometimes injure or even kill their young. Until we've figured out how to meet whatever needs these animals have in captivity, they shouldn't be in captivity at all, much less being used in this kind of crazy science, crazy experiment to bring mammoths back. And of course, it would be silly of me not to point out, acknowledge, notice, that the world has changed a lot since many of these species that are candidates for de-extinction went extinct. And for many species, this here, this here is the native range of the passenger pigeon. There isn't really a place to put them if we were to bring them back. So de-extinction, can we do it? Not yet. But the technology is changing really quickly. And I have little doubt that there will be a time in the future where we can say, at least for some species, that it will be possible to bring them back. But I think a really important question to ask ourselves is whether we should. And as someone who's written a book on this subject, clearly I have a very clear and sincere and honest and open opinion about this. And I do. I have no idea. <laughs> I think that it actually depends on what species you're thinking about and, and how, how much you've thought about the different aspects of what's, what's going on. There are a lot of different species that are candidates for de-extinction projects here. The heath hen and the passenger pigeon, which is a project working with Revive and Restore and Ben Novak from my lab. The gastric brooding frog, this guy was amazing. Do you see that? It, it actually swallows its babies and then throws them up after they're fully developed. What an awesome way to stop them from, from, from being eaten by predators. Um, the auroch, the, the ancestor of domestic cattle being worked on by some folks in the Netherlands. This is the bucardo, this uh, really beautiful ibex that's only recently extinct. There's the stellar sea cow again, of course, mammoth, thylacine. There are lots of different species that have been proposed. But I think for each of these, what the people who've been working on them and what, and what kind of the people who are thinking about these projects have been doing, and maybe not so much some of the more extremely excited members of the, the popular press, haven't been doing is stepping back and asking themselves why. And we're thinking about why, but thinking about why is probably more important initially than thinking about how. Why do we want to bring these animals back? And to finish, I'm going to return to the mammoth for a moment, because I actually think there are some compelling reasons why we might consider bringing a mammoth back, or at least 
creating an elephant that can live in places where a mammoth once lived. And we're going to step over the fact that technically it's not possible and ethically it's a terrible idea and just move on to why we might want to be thinking about this stuff in the first place. So the first reason is ecological. There's a place in northeastern Siberia called Pleistocene Park. This is a, a, a big a cluster of, of, of land that um, uh, a Russian scientist, Sergei Zimov, has uh, started purchasing since the mid-1990s near his home in Chersky. And he's preparing this land for the return of the Ice Age animals, like mammoths and woolly rhinos and things like that. And so far, he has bison that he imported from Canada, some horses, and also about five different species of deer. And he's been studying these animals and the effect of these animals on the landscape that he has there. And he's been doing what are called exclosure experiments here. And what he's done is he's had some parts of Pleistocene Park where these animals aren't allowed to graze and other parts where they are. So on one side of this fence, this side over here, he does not have grazing herbivores. And what you see is that there's pretty much only one species of grass. There's, it's not very productive. It really can't support a large population of herbivores. And on the other side of this fence, you can't see it very well, but there's lots of little patches of green grass. And in fact, there are many different species of grass. This is a very rich community. You note there's a lot of dirt there too. What's important here is that this is very early spring. It's after the first snowmelt, but before the grass has had a chance to regenerate. What this means is that these little tufts of green grass here have actually, are actually still there. Despite that, it's just been a very harsh Siberian winter. That means that this is incredibly rich land. And what Sergei has shown is that just, just having these animals on the landscape, just over the course of a couple years, has turned this relatively poorly productive tundra into a rich grassland that's actually capable of supporting these herbivores. In a sense, these animals have created and maintained their own environment just by walking along the dirt, by turning up that soil, by recycling nutrients and distributing seeds. And not only is there sufficient land for these animals to be able to live throughout the winter, but he's seen other species like saiga antelope that are relatively rare and endangered, given that there's not very much for them to eat, come and visit the park because it is such a rich grassland. And he maintains that creating these animals and having them on this landscape can put that Siberian tundra, that rich land that supported all those animals back on that landscape, providing habitat for populations that are alive today, but in danger of extinction because their habitat is declining. The second reason is more sentimental. Now, few of us can imagine a world without elephants. But Asian elephants are endangered. They're on the endangered species list. Their habitat is declining as populations grow, and we're having trouble protecting them from poaching. What if we could use this technology not to bring mammoths back, since we can't? We're never going to create something that's 100% identical to a species that is no longer alive. But what if we could use this technology instead to save elephants. What if we could take an elephant and insert a few genes here and there to allow it to live in temperate North America or Europe or somewhere like Asia? Perhaps then we could hold on to elephants long enough to find a way to protect their habitat and environment so that they can be reestablished as healthy populations, not on the endangered species list.
but why stop there? This technology is incredibly powerful. The ability to learn a sequence of DNA and inject it into another species that's still alive today. We are facing a crisis, an extinction crisis, a loss of diversity crisis. This technology is kind of scary and it's kind of unknown, but it's also clear that what we've been doing so far is not enough. Species continue to go extinct, habitat continues to decline. I would argue that now's the time to change. Now's the time to take advantage of these technologies that are potentially powerful new weapons in our arsenal against extinction and use them, use them in our fight against the declining diversity that we know is going on in the world today. And I'd like to highlight one project that I know is one of the keystone projects of Revive and Restore as just an idea of how we might be able to use this technology, not to bring something extinct back to life, but to save things that are alive today. And that's the black-footed ferrets. Black-footed ferrets nearly went extinct a couple decades ago because of a hunting and extermination program. Today, there are black-footed ferrets, but they're genetically almost identical to each other. They've been through a very recent population bottleneck. And now, there's a disease that's killing them. What if we could use this technology and go back in time and sequence genomes of black-footed ferrets that were sampled prior to the population bottleneck or that are in museum collections from hundreds, thousands, even tens of thousands of years ago and sample the parts of the genome that provide increased immunity, diversity at the MHC complex, for example, in this particular animal. And then you could take that bit of DNA and inject it, a genetic booster shot, if you will, into black-footed ferrets that are still alive today. Potentially, you'd be able to give these animals, this living, endangered population, a fighting chance against the disease that's killing them. This, I think, this capacity to save ecosystems and species today that are in danger of extinction is, I think, the most powerful application of this technology. And I'd like to end there. Thank you very much. Should we run around or jump down? I need down to do some jumping jacks. I'm freezing. <laughs> I can't believe you'd say that after all that Arctic ferocity you showed us. Didn't you see me up there shivering, though? Jeez. You were shivering. That's true. <laughs> At least there's no mosquitoes. Um, it occurred to me one thing that might be interesting to this group is the early years of ancient DNA research. When people started you know, drilling into these various things and saying, wow, we're finding genes that are millions of years old and stuff like that. Mm. Say a little bit about that period and what happened then. All crap. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so some of the, the first publications that came out in, in ancient DNA were, were about DNA extracted from things like dinosaur bones and mosquitoes preserved in amber. And it, it turns out that the, the technology that we use to be able to extract these tiny little broken pieces of DNA is really powerful. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's incredibly good at picking up tiny little broken pieces of DNA that are just floating in the air. <laughs> and a lot of what, what was initially sequenced and then published as supposedly dinosaur DNA or mosquito DNA 
really was uh, just contamination, stuff that was sequenced from the site. In fact, I talked a little bit about the, um, the group that worked at the, the museum in London on the copal and amber DNA. So they actually went into the back collection at the museum and they picked a whole bunch of pieces of amber and also copal, more recent pieces of copal, some that had insects in them and some that didn't have insects in them. And then they extracted DNA from these guys and tried to amplify some conserved bits of insect DNA. Mm -hmm. And they did get insect DNA, but there was no correlation between <laughs> getting insect DNA from amber or copal and there actually being insects in the amber or copal. <laughs> In your book... I'm kind of wonderful. scared of these questions, I should say. <laughs> uh, I'll get to these. And, and bring up more, Kevin, as they, uh, as they show up. In your book, you talk about, and you're getting into this a little bit at the end, of the concept of ecological resurrection. And there's, you know, there's been concepts like rewilding, which came along about 10, 15 years ago, and then was the, that was really controversial. Lions in my backyard. I don't want that. <laughs> and then uh, uh, you know, the whole ecological replacement notion: if you can place one kind of land tortoise with another land tortoise, and the land doesn't care, and nobody cares, uh, is that where this all fits in? Or what's your sense of that? Yeah, I think it is. Except, uh, you know, it, it allows this to happen a little bit more speedily. The 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 team in the Netherlands that's interested in bringing back the auroch are using a process, not a type of, not one of the steps that I suggested, but it's something called backbreeding. Right. The idea being that you, you look at traits in individuals that, that are similar to what you're trying to bring back, and then you breed those individuals together and hope that the right traits come out. This is kind of what the rewilding uh, the movement wants to do. So you mm -hmm. have to rely on the slow slowness of natural selection and evolution to select for traits or allow species to adapt to whatever new environment they're going to be in. What we're contending is that that happens, but you also use genetic modification and mm -hmm. genome engineering just to speed up that process a little bit. When things have very long generation times or are, are slow or very not particularly fit for an environment where you might want to put them, then maybe we do need to give them this little bit of a push that we can do with changing their DNA sequences. Okay, so people get worked up about that. Um, and they think that's an ethical issue. Do you think that's an ethical issue? Changing DNA sequences? Mm -hmm. Well, it's just faster. It's a, it's a faster way of doing what we've been doing for the last 30,000 years since we first domesticated gray wolves and tried to make dogs. You know, we, we are manipulating nature by trying to create some phenotype that we want rather than mm -hmm. what the natural way would be. I, I guess the, the question is... Um, one of the sort of norms I think that will be emerging around this whole practice is the idea of, in conservation at least, sort of the minimal intervention. What is the minimal intervention you can make to get the outcome that you want ecologically? Well, in conservation, there are really two main schools of thought about what to do, mm -hmm. and, the, and the one is, is kind of preservationist. So mm -hmm. is the idea that we can just buy up large swathes of land and mm -hmm. allow nature space to recover on its own? bits of land that we can stay out of. Mm -hmm. And the other way of thinking about it is, is kind of like gardening. So in, instead of just buying up land, we're actually then going to go in and manipulate it in some way. Mm -hmm. And while I'd like to say that the preservationist way is the way to go, because it's the most natural, it's very clear that that's also not working. Mm -hmm. It's not fast enough. Um, our environment is changing too quickly. Species can't keep up. 
-hmm. think we have to go in there and get our hands dirty. Otherwise, it's going to be too late. It's too slow. We'll take that another layer in. So the Europeans don't like GMOs, and so that's why the guys who are trying to make back the European aurochs are saying, oh, don't worry, no GMOs here. We're just <laughs> doing backbreeding. And you're saying that's slow and kind of random. And uh, in fact, if you go in and, and not just with marker genes and look at the genes that are there, but look at, I would like, this gene that gives the forward horns of the aurochs from this strange animal over here and get the things that make horns. You can figure out those traits, uh, the, the genes that make those phenotypic traits happen and move it in there and not screw around and wait too long. Now, on the one hand, that Europeans this decade, but probably not next decade, <laughs> thinks it feels like a big violation of something. But it also sounds that you're saying that's actually a lot cleaner and simpler in some respects because you know what you're doing. You're not just messing around. Right, sure. So if you're, if you're just breeding traits together, you might get a particular trait that you want, but you don't know if you've gotten it in the same way that evolution mm -hmm. got it in the first place. Whereas if you're actually going in and making a specific change, you know that you're creating the thing that used to exist or the thing that actually causes this particular trait to emerge. It's a lot more complicated than that. Genes mm -hmm. don't operate in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. They operate in the context of the entire genome. So... You know, there are, will always be unintended consequences for any of this, but no more so with uh, genetic modification than there is with standard well, breeding. What I've got is that there's sort of an endless series of arguments and, and I guess, uh, um, discussions that will go on of purists versus pragmatists. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, who's the purist and who's the pragmatist? And each one of these things sort of flips back and forth. Yeah. Here's, a, here's a pragmatic question from Kevin Kelly. Can you use Plan C technology? So, uh, you know, if you're going to try to make a uh, band-tailed pigeon have enough passenger pigeon traits that it can behave like a passenger pigeon, look like a passenger pigeon, and poop on freshly washed cars like a passenger pigeon. <laughs> uh, I read that in your book. <laughs> By the time it happens, there won't be cars anymore. You know? <laughs> anyway. It depends how quickly Ben works. <laughs> if you could do that, um, that's pretty interesting. But the question is, is that really, quote, enough? And so Kevin's question is, could you use Plan C technology to engineer living subspecies to become a living subspecies to become basically another living subspecies? In other words, the proof of this pudding really would be to turn a band-tailed pigeon into a morning dove. <laughs> Right? And right. see if it, you know, mates with morning doves and, you know, behaves like a morning dove and all of that. Yeah. Uh, should we do that first? First? I don't know about first. Well, later. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know, you could use this technology to do lots of things. I mean, this is part of the reason why it's so controversial. And a few weeks ago, there was a Chinese group that published the, the paper showing that they had actually used the same technology to edit human embryos, and this caused quite a big stir. And there are these pushes now from a lot of the scientists who've been involved to, to not use this technology until we understand more about the implications of it. But it is incredibly powerful. Let's say you had a whole bunch of sequences from mm -hmm. all the different birds that exist. Let's mm -hmm. say you had 50 bird genomes, and you also knew the genome sequences of the alligator, crocodile, and gharial. We, we know these things, right? Mm -hmm. We could computationally, bioinformatically, reconstruct the sequence of the first bird, mm -hmm. which is a dinosaur, right? 
The um, Urbord. Tell us about the Urbord. <laughs> you are, right? I mean, the, 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 what is this, 70 million years ago this bird existed? I think more, but yes, 50 to 100 million years, yeah. Ed, what are we saying these days? 80 million years ago, there was a bird that was before all the neo-aves or something like that, right? Yeah, the ancestor of all living birds. Okay. They're also it, dinosaurs. Birds are dinosaurs. So right? you so. can infer the genome of this bird that hasn't been around in all of that time. Right, and then we could take a bird whose genome sequence we know, like a chicken or a pigeon, and we could swap out all of the sequences that we wanted to swap out in that particular bird and kind of step back through evolutionary time a little bit at a time and ask interesting questions about how different traits evolved in birds or how many times different traits evolved in birds. This is an incredibly powerful technology. It's not so powerful in that we can't do it at all right now because we can't clone birds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the ideas are powerful. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> Okay, so if we get, the, it sounds like this is well underway, right? And Ed Feigenbaum is helping us on. So you can recreate the genome, you hope, of, of potentially livable bird who hasn't been around for 80 million years and convert a living bird into that bird. There's going to be an issue of habitat. And food, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, how big it is, how you're going to raise it. There's all, all sorts of issues to, to be addressed. Do we have a guess how big the bird was? Oh, the, a guess? I don't, I don't think there's any way to guess. And birds themselves vary considerably in size. If you think about like the, the moa, the extinct mm -hmm. New Zealand bird that was you know, twice as tall as me to tiny little hummingbirds. There's a lot of variation within birds, and, there's no, and there, we know there was a lot of variation in dinosaurs. So mm -hmm. I don't think there's really a good way to guess how big it would be. What I love about the Urbird project is it makes bringing back the passenger pigeon look so <laughs> sort of normal and easy yeah. and <laughs> non-controversial. And well, of course you would do that, but it's a piece of cake. <laughs> Say a little bit about the difference between you know, cloning a mammal right. and the impossibility of cloning a bird. Right. Those are very big generalization categories, but uh, mm -hmm. for, for any species that's been suggested as a candidate for de-extinction, there are different technical, ethical, and ecological barriers or mm -hmm. considerations, things to think about. The biggest concern with birds is that uh, you know, the, what we've been talking about with mammals, you edit a genome and you end up with a living cell that you can then clone using somatic cell nuclear transfer, which is something that we can do. It doesn't work particularly efficiently still, but it mm -hmm. is something that we can do. And mm -hmm. people have cloned rabbits and dogs and cats and all sorts of things. Birds, we can't clone. Right. We, can't ha we don't have access to the egg cell at the right stage where it's primed to develop into a living bird, but not fertilized yet. We can't mm -hmm. actually get the cell at that and point. And it doesn't implant. I guess it's moving down the oviduct the whole right. time. Right. It kind of tumbles down. And the, the, all the, you know, when, you, when you crack an egg, you see that the white is around it, and there's the, the thick layer that connects it to the mm -hmm. holes of the egg. Those are all deposited in about 24 hours between fertilization in a chicken and when that egg is laid. Mm -hmm. um, and once that egg is laid, the, the embryo is actually pretty significantly along the way toward development, definitely to the point where you could not remove it and then insert another embryo in its place without causing significant damage. Right? So it wouldn't game be possible over, right? Yeah, well, there are other technologies that are being developed to, to work with birds, and, and they're really interesting, and again, not 
near the state where we could mm -hmm. actually do them yet. But the idea would be that when that, in a chicken, when the egg is laid, the cells that are going to go on to become sperm or eggs are not in the gonads yet, because the gonads don't exist, but instead are kind of migrating around the outside of that embryo. And at that point, you could inject, stick a needle in there and suck out a few of those cells. Mm -hmm. And you can put them in a dish in a lab, and they don't replicate at that point, but they can live in that dish in the lab for a few days in some species of bird. And at that point, you can edit them, mm -hmm. plan C them, and change those. And then you would take those cells and inject them mm -hmm. into a different egg that's just been laid, and those edited cells would migrate around the embryo and establish themselves in the gonads. Mm -hmm. And then the bird that was born would be totally normal, but its offspring would have edited DNA if those offspring were made using the sperm and egg that had been edited. Because this would be effectively a chicken with passenger pigeon gonads that lays passenger pigeon eggs. It sounds nuts, but there have been. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not the first time someone has said to Stuart Brand, that sounds nuts. <laughs> but there have been, there has been a chicken that uh, they injected duck primordial germ cells, these pre-germ cells, and, mm. and those duck primordial germ cells migrate around, and then that chicken was fertilized with duck sperm, mm -hmm. and then it laid eggs that hatched into perfect ducks. With proud chickens <laughs> not knowing how to raise them. God, such a stickler for the details. <laughs> <laughs> you send it over to the duck. <laughs> Well, there's a similar issue of, thank you, because there is a workaround potentially in process. Uh, we are in the thick of finding people, the Rosalind Institute in Scotland, and uh, here a company in the Bay Area, and uh, there's a, a guy in Australia, uh, Jim Collins, I think it is, who's, what's his name, Ryan? Tim Doran. Tim Doran. Tim. Tim Doran, who um, has figured out a way to shortcut do it in vivo, basically, and just yeah. instead of in vitro, instead of doing all the editing out here, uh, just basically hypodermic right into the living embryo, and some of the stuff takes up, and then you get to start to do at least trade analysis in the birds that are coming out of this chimeric parent. Yeah, it's a fast-moving field of stuff that we still can't do. <laughs> Speaking of fast moving, one of the issues with the woolly mammoth and indeed with mammals, but particularly with the woolly mammoth, is the uh, perhaps uh, not excited Asian mother who doesn't want her eggs harvested, which is what's involved in cloning usually, and, and there's a certain amount of sacrifice of animals to get the eggs harvested, and then you do a great many of those, and you implant some of those, and all take, and so on. Uh, we don't have a lot of Asian elephant females to spare for that sort of thing. And they don't ovulate very frequently. And they don't ovulate that frequently. Uh, though we did hear from Dennis Smith, the, the reproductive veterinarian we're talking about, we said, you know, if we can get a, a mammoth-like embryo to implant in a uh, about-to-be-pregnant female Asian elephant, uh, it was going to be hard to get it in there. He says, it's all right, I've got a 10-foot endoscope. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually pretty relaxed about that part. <laughs> <laughs> he has great stories to tell. If you can imagine. Imagine. <laughs> but um, there's the issue. That, so in your book, you mentioned, well, uh, maybe uh, George Church talks about artificial uterus. Right. 
Uh, there's actually moving in that direction. The technology's now got tissues that have blood supply, which is starting to be the kind of thing you would want in an artificial uterus. That might get around the size right. issue if you can. And a little over a decade ago, there was someone from Baltimore who actually used a mouse to grow uh, elephant eggs. So they implanted or, or he hybridized elephant follicles that were harvested from a recently killed right. or a, yeah, okay. a carcass that was right, found. Right. And actually got the mouse to grow on its back a few misshapen elephant eggs. So the technology doesn't exist, but it could. So these mm -hmm. are one of these. It's like anything else in, in de-extinction mm -hmm. or really conservation biology. None of the technology that comes is for this purpose, right? Mm -hmm. It's all being developed with human reproductive health or human genetic health in mind. Mm -hmm. um, we just get to ride on the coattails of this really cool stuff and potentially apply it to important questions. In Which is great, because you know, all of the money and interest in these huge labs right. and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> we can just kind of draft in behind that, which is neat. And yet, it is also the case that there's interest from some of the medical people uh, in what we're doing because ethically for very good reasons. There's a lot of stuff you don't want to try in humans first, right. but you might want to try in, in animals first, uh, if there's good ethical reasons to attempt it for the animals like you described. Right, but probably not with elephants. It would okay. probably initially be attempted with lab animals, like mm -hmm. uh, you know mice or other animals that were we know much more about their reproductive strategies and we know how to keep them healthy and happy in labs because we've been working on them for a long time. Uh, you know, these uh, model organisms, so-called. What do you think about, uh, there's the thing that's been done with mice where you get uh, basically stem cells that are so pluripotent or omnipotent and you can turn them into, into uh, sperm and eggs. Now, that's been done with mice, right? That's how I understand it. Okay. <laughs> and so that leads to a possible workaround to uh, get from the edited elephant stem cell line uh, edited into being partly mammoth. Uh, take those omnipotent stem cells and get them to, be, to make into uh, eggs and or sperm. Do a little uh, in vitro fertilization and you get what should be a pretty good egg that hasn't involved any harvesting from female mammoths at all and implant that. Implant it in what? In a ready female mammoth. Or in uh, artificial. I'm uh, sorry, ready female <laughs> uh, elephant, yeah. Or an artificial. One of the problems with elephants, and I'm curious uh, to hear what your elephant reproductive biologist said. That one of the, as far as I understand, one of the problems is that they have a, they have a hymen that grows back in between each pregnancy that actually helps to maintain the pregnancy. It's a long pregnancy, a very mm -hmm. heavy. Two embryo. years or something, yeah. Yeah, as long as two years. And the hymen has a hole in it, but it's only big enough for a sperm to mm -hmm. pass through, and certainly not big enough for a, a partially developed hybrid mammoth elephant embryo. Mm -hmm. um, so has your elephant reproductive biologist addressed that with his? No, it's the next question for him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But what I think you're getting a sense of is that and, and Beth is terrific at saying, you know, there's an insurpassable barrier here. And then a few years go by, and then there's, it becomes a semi-permeable <laughs> barrier, and then a passable barrier, and then it's routine that we do that. And, you know, I harken back, I sort of vaguely remember when in vitro fertilization for humans was first being developed. And um, the early stages of that, there were a lot of failures and scary things. 
Yeah, and if you look at the success rate for cloning, just mm -hmm. somatic cell nuclear transfer style mm -hmm. cloning, Dolly was one of almost 300 mm -hmm. different beginnings, 300 egg cells. And, and somatic cell nuclear transfer has gotten better, but it's still extremely inefficient. Mm -hmm. Often there are hundreds of... Mm -hmm of uh, cells that are taken that are tried to reset and hundreds of eggs that are used. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, uh, and, and every animal has different challenges. Dogs, it took a very long time for anyone to successfully clone a dog because of some strangeness in their actual reproductive pattern. It, it was very hard to time the getting of the eggs such that we're, they were able to get them at the right state to be able to re reset that, that somatic cell to turn it into a kind of cell that would become every other type of cell in the body. And there's only one outfit now that claims to successfully be able to clone dogs, and they'll clone your dog for you for $100,000. Whoa. It's in South Korea. They have customers, I'll bet, too, <laughs> for that. You're an evolutionary biologist, and um, I think one of the questions that keeps coming up, and, and it's a good one, is you get these animals out in the land, you go through captive breeding, and there's problems with that, and you start doing soft release, so they're starting to, you know, they're half captive and they're half in the, out in the world. And reintroduction techniques and protocols have gotten better and better in the last few decades. But now they're out there, and life is tough in the wild compared to captive breeding. Um, we can't manage in the wild anymore, any of us. We've domesticated ourselves too far to really do hunter-gatherer without a whole bunch of cultural knowledge we don't have anymore. So these creatures, what happens over time? And an example that comes to mind is something that Ryan and I ran into when we were in, in Tanzania a year ago, is we were hearing from um, some of the guides that in Africa now there's female elephants being born without tusks, and they grow to maturity and have baby elephants without tusks. And we thought, well, that's a pretty fun story to tell the eco-tourists, and I'm sure it makes them smile. Then we started checking around with some field workers, and, um, and it turns out this has happened at various places in Africa when poaching was particularly fierce. There's, it looks like there's just a gene or two that affects whether the elephant has a tusk or not. And it has the, you know, the evolution has the when the pressure is that enormous as the ability to respond and give you a tuskless elephant for the time that ivory is the, the way that you don't live anymore. So in places where they're not killed for bushmeat anymore, they're just killed for ivory. And that's the thing that, that keeps you from reproducing. You can imagine that you know even a slow reproducing animal like an elephant will do an evolutionary workaround. Right. What I'm getting at is does life always find a way? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's how life works, right? I mean, ecosystems are dynamic, and they're constantly changing, and they change in response to the species that are there and the species that are not there. And we see how species that are invasive, considered to be invasive, uh, mm -hmm. that come into a particular climate from somewhere else because they're accidentally introduced on the bow of a ship or with some plant cutting that comes across that you can have a pretty plant in your garden, how these species can get into and sometimes not take off and other times for completely unknown reasons completely take off and replace native species that are there. It's, uh, it's, it's impossible to predict 100% of the time, 
what's going to happen in the natural world. We can't control everything. But you know, if the biggest fear of trying this, if the biggest fear of genetically modifying elephants that they can live in North America is that the elephant that gets into North America is somehow going to be weirder than an elephant in some way that we didn't appreciate elephants mm -hmm. that live in Africa, I would rather, ha rather have slightly weird North American elephants <laughs> than no elephants. We both met elephants. And uh, as this veterinarian I mentioned said, elephants have this really sensitive trunk. Uh, and when you first meet an Asian elephant, the thing they do is they reach down with their trunk and sniff your shoes, see where you've been lately. And uh, then, they, then they basically open the conversation. But <laughs> as he said, with this trunk, they reach right into your soul and take your heart. Uh, these are amazingly lovable and engageable animals. And I think that's one of the attractions of the, of the woolly mammoth here. All right, Colby coming in from another angle says, could we use this kind of thinking to engineer ourselves to sustain the effects of climate change? Do we need engineering? I think we're pretty good at engineering our environment and, and changing everything around us so that we can, we can evolve that. But sure, I mean, this is one of the biggest controversies about this technology is that it can be used to engineer humans. I mean, there's no reason that it couldn't be other than ethical, and that's scary. Controversial. Um, Kevin Kelly asks, what about making brand new species, new hybrids? I mean, hybridization happens all the time in nature, right? I mean, you know, we got coyotes who will mate with anything. <laughs> and, you know, there's a, there's a coyote on the East Coast now that can take down a white-tailed deer and hunt in packs and stuff like that. Wow. So, I don't want to meet that coyote. <laughs> <laughs> so far, they're leaving people alone. They are clever. Um, but, you know, you're talking about intention versus letting it happen. Um, I think people are going to be creating new kinds of pets pretty soon, don't you? I think that was one of the first things you asked me, was mm. uh, whether or not we could use technology to make a cat with wings or something. Was that, that was not me. <laughs> a cat that would do what you told it, that would be something. <laughs> no, that is completely impossible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that it's not is interesting, because... Um, <laughs> One of the things, and you know, this was the whole sociobiology debate that Edward O. Wilson set off a couple of decades ago, is, you know, how much behavior is genetic? What's your thought on that? How much behavior is genetic? I, I think we don't know. I think that, uh, and you know what's, what's fascinating to me along the lines of how much we don't know is the, the new work that's being done on the, on the microbiome, on the stuff that lives in our gut, and mm -hmm. showing that how a lot of behavior is actually influenced by the stuff that's inhabiting our intestines rather than by our own DNA or the environment that we live in. I think there's a big unknown out there. And presumably when we'll start with the microbiome of the sort of surrogate parents and then go from there, right? Yeah, it's really hard to know how one might create the, micro, the ancient microbiome. We do have gut contents from mammoths and other species that have been uh, 
mummified in the frozen soil, but it's really hard to know what microbes you get out of that gut that are from the gut or versus from the, the, the soil that's nearby. We've done a couple of experiments where we've taken DNA from the gut and then also from the soil next to where the mummies were found, mm -hmm. and we find very similar microbial communities, but we don't know if that's because the stuff from the gut gets into the soil or because the stuff from the soil gets into the gut. It's a... Uh, to be discovered. To be discovered. Uh, a guy watching the live stream named Sam says, what should we be doing now to help future generations recall species that are endangered today if they should go extinct? Mm. Well, I think one of the most powerful projects uh, that's going on right now is the project that Oliver Ryder at the, the San Diego Zoo has been in charge of for a while, the, the, the frozen zoo, where he's been collecting tissue samples or other materials from everything as much as he can get his hands on, things that are endangered and things that are not endangered, and sampling lots of different diversity from things and preserving that stuff in a, in a very in, in frozen in mm -hmm. liquid nitrogen in San Diego Zoo, so that when this technology does become available, that the resources that we might need to be able to engineer diversity into populations will exist. In fact, uh, he, 30 years ago, cryopreserved a couple of black-footed ferrets um, that were not part of the seven founders that made the several thousand ferrets that now exist badly inbred. And we are in the process of working with him to see if we can clone those two uh, specimens back into living ferrets because cryopreserved tissue, which is the answer to that question, is basically viable cells with viable DNA. And I've seen the cell line from those ferrets swinging around in a petri dish going, you know, it's alive. And uh, we, can, we can clone those creatures and hopefully get back to nine founders at least, and that's a start. And also continue to care about and protect habitats and species that are alive today. This is right. not a, a band-aid for the problem that we're going through. Right. This is not a replacement for the energy that we should be using to conserve and preserve things today. Absolutely. Uh, Peter Schwartz asked, are the plants worth restoring, and would it be easier or harder? Well, that's a good question. Plants are maybe both easier and harder. Um, you know, there's a really fascinating project right now with the uh, American chestnut, where mm -hmm. um, it's not actually completely dead because the, the shoots will grow and, and survive until they get to be a certain diameter and thickness and then the fungus attacks the tree and it, it can't actually grow past a certain age. But there's a, a group that's been working on using genetic engineering and genetic modification to come up with a, a genetic cure to the disease that's killing them. And I think this is probably the most likely to succeed mm -hmm. de-extinction project that's out there right now. If de-extinction is the right term, term because it's not actually dead yet. Um, there are seeds that, uh, from the Siberian permafrost that uh, Russian scientists claim they've been able to actually generate because the seeds themselves were not dead yet mm -hmm. and were actually brought back to life out of the frozen soil and just grew. Um, so there's a benefits to working with plants. <laughs> they also have very big, very complicated genomes. So if we have to mm -hmm. sequence the genomes of plants, sometimes they might have you know, many, many times greater right. number of nucleotides in their genomes than, a, than an animal would. So actually identifying the genes that might be responsible for making a plant look or act in some way mm -hmm. might be harder in some cases than with an animal. So. How about invertebrates? There's a group here, well, there's a publication called the Xerxes Society and it's named for the Xerxes Blue, which is a butterfly, local butterfly in San Francisco that went extinct not long ago. Um, used to live out in the dunes. And uh, there's lots of specimens here at the 
Cal Academy and so on. Uh, how about bringing back an invertebrate like the Xerxes blue butterfly? I don't, I don't know what the challenge is to bringing back an invertebrate mm. would be at this point. It's not something that I think has been considered very much in the literature, and it's something that I can say with a little bit of embarrassment I haven't thought of either, um, really thought through the technical hurdles mm -hmm. that would be uh, associated with that. From an ethical perspective, it might be something we should focus on. Maybe something like a butterfly mm -hmm. would be easier to bring back from an ethical mm -hmm. perspective um, and would be just as magnificent and awe-inspiring and encouraging for people to see something like that brought back. So, hey, maybe we should think about that for the next project. Okay. <laughs> um, how's the passenger pigeon going? You guys have been sequencing like mad. Uh, your husband runs Dovetail, which is this brand new generation of sequencing that gets long reads and is going to change the whole sequencing industry. Uh, you've done the band-tailed pigeon, the passenger pigeon. What's the news from that department? Well, we have uh, four, there are now four high coverage, you know, very good quality passenger pigeon genome sequences, and we mm -hmm. have a couple of band-tailed pigeons. And um, we've just been continually surprised by what we see. Um, there are two different types of DNA in every cell. There's the nuclear genome, that's the stuff that makes you look and act the way you do if you're mm -hmm. a passenger pigeon or a person. And then there's the mitochondrial genome, which is a, it lives, it's a, a mitochondria is a, is an organelle inside cells that uh, has its own genome. It's thought to have been absorbed at some point by some early form of life and a symbiotic relationship with cells. And now all of us have them, and they're only inherited through your mom. Mm -hmm. So there's no recombination. It's got a very simple evolutionary history. Well, one of the most surprising things we've seen with passenger pigeons is that that mitochondrial DNA suggests that their population was very small or very recently expanding and that they went through a very recent population bottleneck, like now within the last 50,000 years or so. Small, mean, I mean, it got to be 5 billion or so. Yes, it doesn't make any sense at all, given mm -hmm. the census population size. Mm -hmm. But the nuclear genome shows a lot of diversity, a surprising amount of diversity, and we're still in the middle of trying to tease apart these differences. Why can we get such conflicting results from within the same cells? And perhaps the reason is that this bird was going through these oscillations, big populations followed by small populations. But what's most interesting about the mitochondrial result anyway, is that the expansion, which must have happened to get it to billions of individuals by the time Europeans first arrived, mm -hmm must have been happening from before and during the peak of the last ice age. So the bird must have been really able to use whatever resources were available to it, including mm -hmm. like the deciduous forests as well as you know, pine, alpine forests, because hmm. there weren't widespread deciduous forests during the peak of the last ice age. And yet there must have been a large number of birds because you can't go from none to billions in any time that's shorter than since the last ice age. It's just not possible. <laughs> well, so, uh, you guys are going to publish all of this sometime soon? Oh, eventually, as soon as we figure out what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably entirely wrong about everything I just said. <laughs> Check back next week. This is what is so fun about these projects, is it's cutting-edge technology in terms of the tools that are being used. And it's cutting-edge science in terms of what the tools are discovering at each stage of these various processes. You know, what was actually the case of what they're discovering in the ancient DNA. Uh, ben is looking at, you know, trying to resurrect uh, a sense of what the ecology of the bird was back then. 
this information then plays against, well, how resourceful a bird was it under you know, a time when it had a completely different forest to live in, and so right. on and so forth. And given that can it, it can eat everything, then we probably really want it back, so it can eat everything. Mm -hmm. So basically, we're, I think uh, Beth is living proof that uh, science finds a way and life finds a way. <laughs> Thank you for coming. <laughs>